Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We really appreciate it. We have lots of good information for you today. We have two economists. We have Steve Meyer, economist for Partners for Production Agriculture. We'll be looking at the hog market, packing plant situation. And we have Seth Meyer, the new USDA chief economist. We'll get his thoughts on last week's Outlook Forum, his thoughts on the ag economy moving forward. So Steve Meyer and Seth Meyer will be joining us today. And Justin Gilpin, CEO for Kansas Wheat. Last time we talked with Justin was during that uh, that hard, cold snap we had, the real winter storm that hit much of the country, and we were concerned about uh, so many things, of course, uh, including the condition of the wheat crop. And uh, as farmers have a chance to get out and kind of look at that a little more now with the uh, warm-up and the improved weather, what are they finding? We'll talk with Justin Gilpin about that, get a crop update a little bit later on in the program. But let's start things off with Paul Blyberg, Senior Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. Paul, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Mike. Hey, lots going on. Secretary Vilsack confirmed and has taken over again at USDA and uh, so many proposals out there, so many ideas, many of them on climate. Certainly Secretary Vilsack has uh, highlighted that as priorities at USDA. From a dairy perspective, Paul, what is your industry looking uh, at doing, working with the new administration, the new Congress, and showing how dairy uh, is dealing with climate issues as well? Yeah, so I think the the climate issue is going to be a major focus for us this year, Mike. And about a year ago, we launched the Net Zero Initiative with a number of other industry partners with the goal of getting dairy's collective carbon footprint to net zero by 2050 and also resolving some of the water quality challenges we're facing. So I think we're very heartened by the opportunity not just to work with the administration, but also to work with the new House and the new Senate. There's a lot of interest on both uh, sides of the aisle on Capitol Hill, Republicans and Democrats, in wanting to move legislation on the climate issue. And I think we're hopeful that that can occur in a bipartisan way, because when it works that way, the policy tends to be more durable for the long term. And we're excited as well that, obviously, Secretary Vilsack, who's long been a great champion in this space, is uh, is eager to get to work. So, you know, we've got a number of different ideas around investment tax credits to make certain technologies more affordable that can help deal with uh, water quality challenges, as well as, of course, digesters, uh, possibly speeding up approval processes for different feed additives that can reduce enteric emissions from cows. And, of course, we're also part of the Food and Ag Climate Alliance now. We joined the steering committee a number of weeks ago, and that's a broad coalition of agriculture and conservation organizations working together on not just these issues I mentioned, but several others, certainly the discussions around a carbon bank, which came up somewhat yesterday at the House Ag Committee's hearing. So I think we've got a full plate. Are there any proposals out there that raise concerns or that uh, you think could be troublesome for agriculture? So, you know, I think our focus is going to remain on, you know, voluntary producer-led efforts, whether that's in the, you know, farm bill conservation space. Certainly the different members of the ag committees have a lot of interest in what can be done and what's already being done out of the Title II farm bill programs, as well as new and innovative approaches we can do on some other fronts. 
I've not seen anything proposed yet by any of the you know the key principals on the ag committees or at USDA that gives concern. Obviously, there can be standalone bills introduced by different members of Congress at any point. But you know, right now, from what I'm seeing from the key players, I think it's been really positive. Now, there's been an immigration proposal advanced or introduced. To, certainly, that's a key issue for agriculture in general, for the dairy industry specifically. What do you see there that stands out to you? So our, our immigration goals, really ag labor, continue to be twofold. One is making sure that dairy has access to a workable guest worker program, which is whether that be H-2A or anything else, uh, which, of course, doesn't currently work for year-round operations. And two, providing an adjustment of legal status to give a permanent legal status to our current farm workers, who are obviously very, very important, not just to their farms, uh, but also to their communities and their, their families, too, of, of course. So the, the Biden plan, which has been introduced in Congress, has some provisions on that second item on adjustment of status for current workers. It doesn't have anything on addressing the guest worker future flow needs that we have. So what we're really focusing on right now, frankly, is moving through the House and then hopefully into the Senate. Uh, once again, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, which passed the House back in 2019 on a bipartisan vote, wasn't a perfect bill, but it was a good starting point and it addressed in broad strokes the two goals that we have that I just outlined. We've had positive conversations about moving that bill through the House very quickly uh, with members of both parties. The authors of that measure are Congressman Zoe Lofgren from California on the Democratic side and Dan Newhouse from Washington on the Republican side. So I think we're hopeful there that we can get that over to the Senate. And then as discussions occur in the Senate on some kind of a targeted immigration legislative package that we can have that measure primed to be kind of the starting point for ag labor negotiations in the Senate. We've had great conversations with senators in both parties on this as well. So I think we're hopeful that the House can act fairly soon, and then that can tee up a good process in the Senate. You know, there could also be votes on the Biden plan that's put out, but I think we see that as a little bit more of a broader marker than a likely vehicle for getting anything into law. It's It's been so elusive. It's bogged down in the past. The efforts have fallen apart. Do you think there's a better chance this time or not? It's hard to say. I, you know, we always want to be optimistic. I think the um, the linchpin that may make something possible is the DREAM Act issue, the DACA issue, which you'll recall was a program created under the Obama administration, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And these are you know, people that came to the U.S. as kids with their parents, of course. So they, they came here through no fault or decision-making of their own. I don't even want to use the word fault, but so it wasn't their decision. And this is the only country they've lived in their entire lives. There's broad interest in both political parties in resolving this issue. If the House votes in the next few weeks on the ag labor bill I described, they may also hold a vote on this. And notably in the Senate, uh, Senator Dick Durbin, the Democratic senator from Illinois, who chairs the Judiciary Committee, and Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, who's a former chairman and still a member of that committee, introduced a bipartisan DACA Dream Act bill a few weeks ago. And I think we expect that they're going to want to move that bill through the Senate. I, quite honestly, our hope is that if the House moves their version of that bill and moves the ag labor bill, I talked about, we can tee up the ag labor bill to be packaged on to the DACA bill and improved a bit and move forward that way. That's kind of, I think, what we see is the way to get this done. Now, that may not be possible. As you said, the politics have really eluded us a solution on this on both sides for so long. Uh, you know, maybe now we have an opportunity. We'll, we'll find out. And real quick on CFAP, what do you hope to see for agriculture there? So I think, you know, in, in that space, when it, when it relates to the dairy COVID needs right now, we're really focused on implementing a number of provisions from the December package. Obviously, there's a dairy donation program that's very, very helpful, and uh, we're excited about that. We've been working with USDA on that, and that was a real priority, not only of Senator Debbie Sabinow, chair of the Senate Ag Committee, but of you know, former House Ag Chairman Colin Peterson. We were glad that 
that got through. And that's going to go a long way helping connect uh, dairy organizations and food banks together to move product into food insecure households. So we're excited about that. There's also a directive in the bill to make sure that the producers who were hit by the CFAP payment limits last year kind of get some additional relief to better compensate for their losses. So we're going to be working on implementation of that provision and certainly as well on the supplemental dairy margin coverage program that was put into the bill to kind of help some of the smaller producers uh, get a, a production history update or at least get some supplemental payments in tandem with production history updates they've had over the last few years. So those are kind of going to be some immediate priorities for us in that space. Wow, a lot going on. Paul, thanks for the update. Thanks for having me. As Paul Bleiberg, Senior Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. Up next, we'll talk with Steve Meyer, Economist for Partners for Production Agriculture. We'll take a look at the hog market and what's going on with packing plants. Stay with us. That's next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're talking with Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat. Last time we talked, you brought up some of those decisions that farmers will have to make when it comes to uh, what to plant. So now this winter weather and the impact on the wheat crop, that could influence those decisions, as you said, even more. Well, it certainly will. You know, we had just before this cold weather event, we were reaching points in southwest Kansas and feedlot country where corn and wheat were actually near even money for cash prices. So you had feedlots that were making decisions that were going with beginning to put wheat into their feed rations because corn basis was so strong in some of these countries. We were seeing wheat moving into the Texas panhandle and the feedlot. And when you have prices like this where farmers can lock in not just for this crop year but for next crop year on some of these real crop prices, and if they're able to lock in some of their other input prices, it's certainly attractive for producers and it's really could affect what happens with our overall wheat acres and potential carryout projections. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture. Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry. The pros and cons of issues important to you, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of the topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you a guest important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture. Farmers and operators don't always have to get a new piece of machinery to get state-of-the-art performance. At Intelligent Ag, our company was founded by farmers and innovators to build smart farming technology to help you get the most out of your ag equipment, meaning improved performance and high return on investment. The next time you think you need an upgrade on your equipment, consider Intelligent Ag upgrades. We offer flow monitoring and section control solutions on air seeders and fertilizer floaters. Visit IntelligentAg.com to learn more. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor. Restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. 
Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, to keep us up to date on what's going on with the hog market, we check in with Steve Meyer, economist for Partners for Production Agriculture. Steve, good to talk with you. What's the latest? Let's start with the packing plants. How are we doing there? Packing plants are running great. Um, We've uh, pretty well overcome the the problems we had last year. Still have a few plants that are running low below their rated capacity, mainly uh, on the east coast, uh, but even the the big Tar Heel plants back up to around 32,000 a day. So uh, I don't think packing capacity is an issue right now. Um, right now, uh, we have a we have a very nice problem. We've got great demand for our product, and so um, uh, we've uh, kind of solved that. Uh, obviously, plants and companies are trying to get their workers vaccinated uh, to the best they can to protect themselves. But um, as hopefully we get on the backside of this pandemic, uh, I think we're we're through the worst of that. We were dealing through much of last year with, um, you know, more distancing, and uh, that was slowing things down. How that is is that all smoothed out pretty well then? Well, I think all the plants have figured out ways to to handle it. Now, the the, the risk factor that the plants face right now is governmental uh, regulation. Uh, we hear some talk out of the Biden administration about uh, you know very uh, heightened concern for worker safety, and I, I I'm not. We're going to argue against being concerned about worker safety. Obviously, we want to do that. Um, uh, I think the the problem is going to be probably in how they see it ought to be done versus some practicality out in the real world. And so uh, I think that's the biggest risk we run on the patent side is government regulations coming in from a worker safety standpoint that might slow these plants down. There's two fat factors. One of them is obviously coronavirus risk. And then the other one is the new uh, line speed uh, uh, regulations that were allowed under the Trump administration. There's been a lot of press about uh, those uh, having uh, been uh, detrimental to worker safety. And so um, that one is not a huge loss of capacity should we have to slow the line speed back down. Uh, but um, uh, all of those could add up if we get in a position where we've got lots of hogs in the fall. We're talking with Steve Meyer, economist for Partners for Production Agriculture. You mentioned strong demand for pork. Uh, what are we seeing as far as some restaurants starting to open? Are we starting to see more move through those channels again? Well, I think it's early as far as movement there. I mean, obviously, we do have restaurants and feed service operations across the country that are at least gearing up to open as the weather gets better. Um, even where they have limited capacities indoors, you know, we're going to have some better weather conditions where they can put tents outside and tables outside. And so we think that the food service sector will respond some this spring. Now, we've got to see kind of how that, that balances with the retail. Last year, as we closed down food service, obviously there was a huge shock in March and April. But as the, as the year wore on, uh, retail demand more than made up for the food service demand. And we had total uh, consumer-level demand for pork up 3% for the year. Um, 
as you go this year or as you open food service back up, will that go the other way? Uh, you know, if you think about it, if you're going to spend a dollar on pork, you can get more pork buying it at a retail store than you can buying it in a food service because you pay for other things. And so uh, I'm a little concerned about that. But right now, this demand is just excellent. It's pulled uh, the cutout value, you know, up above 90. Uh, we've got live hogs, you know, trading in the upper 70s. Actually had a top side of the negotiated at better than 80 yesterday. And then the summer uh, futures are well up in the 90s. I, I've been completely wrong on this. Uh, I've gotten the supply side pretty well right. Uh, I think we got the right, the number of pigs, I thought. But the demand uh, situation has been way better than what uh, I think anybody anticipated. That's a good situation to have demand even better than expected. So let's look now on the production side. We know producers are dealing with higher feed costs. They are, and those won't have a real impact on hog numbers for some time to come. Now, what they could do is they could moderate these weights uh, for sure as those last few pounds become a little more unprofitable. And so uh, you could see weights kind of come down, and that would put a negative uh, pressure on 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 production. Uh, even though you're slaughtering the same number of animals, you'd produce a little less pork that way. Um, the, the thing about it is, you know, yeah, corn and soybean meal are high, and our break-even model has the average producer at over $80 a hundredweight, but look where the futures are. There's still not an incentive here to be cutting back production very much other than balancing those last few pounds of gain with these high feed costs. Now, this, this feed cost thing is not going away anytime soon, I don't think. We have to remember that these feed costs are, are being accomplished with a decent crop last year. It wasn't as if we had a short crop. And this is a demand-driven food uh, feed cost situation, too. And much of that demand is coming from China. I mean, they've been in our corn market at an unprecedented level. And I think the big factor driving that, Mike, is that their government banned garbage feeding back in November. And if you take the percentage of pigs in China that were fed garbage, uh, I think it's likely that there are as many pigs fed garbage over there as we have. And that means you're switching all of those pigs over to what we would consider more normal diets. And so uh, we don't think that this... Um, this feed cost situation is a short-term thing. We think it's going to last. It's going to take more than one good crop to get us out of it. And, uh, of course, now we're going to be looking at planting, USDA said, um, 182 million acres to corn and soybeans at their outlook forum a week before last. That would be a record uh, acreage. Uh, I'm not real sure where all those acres come from. And so I, I think this is a long-term or at least a, a two- or three-year kind of situation on feed costs. We're going to be dealing with this for a while. Meant to ask you, you know, we spent much of last year talking about the backlog and uh, uh, number of hogs, you know, producers were trying to cool them off and hold them and, mm -hmm. and hang on mm -hmm. to them. Where are we on working through that number? Pretty well done. I mean, the only place that we have really any backlog still is, we think, in North Carolina. Uh, in the Smithfield system and maybe some of their suppliers. But even those hogs, if you look at the weights of packer-raised pigs over the last few weeks, they've come down. They're still four pounds heavier than they were a year ago, but I think they're going to close that gap pretty quickly. We understand that Smithfield is going to stop shipping hogs from North Carolina to Illinois for slaughter uh, probably this week. So they must be in a much better situation of handling those. The rest of the country has been current for some time, and right now I think the rest of the country is ultra-current uh, from the producer-sold side. So 
Uh, I believe that's behind us as well, as long as we can keep our packing plants running uh, somewhere near uh, their capability. Yeah, amazing turnaround there. Uh, so what's your uh, yeah. what's your outlook, price outlook moving through 2021? Well, my price outlook is, I mean, I've, I've ratcheted it up to, to, um, um, to reflect these demand conditions as we've gone forward. I mean, you know, you're, you'd be an idiot to, to just keep uh, doggedly saying, here's my outlook when conditions have obviously changed. And they have changed. And so we've got summer hogs up in the mid, low to mid-90s. Um, you've got, uh, that's kind of where the futures are, but, uh, you know, there's talk of them going higher than that. I wouldn't rule that out right now. Um, we've got fall hogs back down around uh, in the high 70s. Uh, we think uh, the futures are going to beat that. So we still think that the futures are offering good pricing opportunities. And, and it's one of those things, uh, Mike, that I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go today and sell every hog for the second half of the year. But at these kind of prices, you're looking at pretty nice profits. And so if you uh, have a quarter of your hogs sold at these prices, then – and you end up selling the rest of them higher, that's not too bad a thing. So, again, uh, and, and the real, maybe the best strategy, and one that we're, we're talking to our clients about, is use options to do this so that you uh, put a floor under these uh, futures prices as you go through the rest of the year and leave the top side open to you. And there are some strategies that you can do that with that don't cost you a lot of money. And so um, that would seem to be us to make the same, the, the most sense on the hog side. Just the opposite on the grain side. Um, these grain prices are high. Uh, soybean meal prices are high, but they could go higher. And uh, at this point, you know, maybe your your uh, approach here is to accept a small disaster to prevent a big disaster, and you can do that again with option strategy. So I would encourage your producer listeners to talk to their marketing specialists and marketing advisors about some strategies that put a floor under hog prices at some of these levels that we see, which are very attractive, and leave the top side open and put a lid on these grain prices and leave the bottom side open. Good information. Steve, good to talk with you. What what a past 12 months it has been. Quite a ride indeed. Thanks for keeping us up to date. It has, Mike. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Take care. Steve Meyer, economist for Partners for Production Agriculture. We have another economist coming up next. USDA's chief economist, Seth Meyer, will join us. We'll talk about the numbers uh, they released at the USDA Outlook Forum last week and what he sees ahead for the ag economy here in 2021. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. 
They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Grains are seeing moderate to heavy losses in follow-through selling from Thursday's session. The break feels technical in nature, even though bears are citing poor export sales data from Thursday. On the Board of Trade, March corn is trading a penny and a half cent lower at 5.53 and a fraction. The May contract down four at 5.45 and three quarters. March soybeans trading three and a half cent lower at 14.02 and a fraction. The May contract down five and a half cent at 1402. For the wheat's March Chicago wheat trading 11 and a half cent lower at 660 and a fraction. Kansas City wheat March down 15 and a fraction at 629. Minneapolis spring wheat March down seven and a half cent at 634. The May contract down eight and a half cent at 642. Both cattle and hog futures did not perform Thursday as well as hoped given the strong close on Wednesday. The market might be getting tired, leaving potential for a significant technical price correction. However, cash continues to indicate steady to higher prices. On the Board of Trade, April lean hogs trading 30 cents higher at 90.05. The May contract up 17 at 91.32. For feeders, the March contract down 92 at 139.50. The April contract $1.62 lower at 143.45. For live cattle, the April contract down 87 at 120.80. The June contract down 85 at 118.65. Cash cattle country is slow to start this morning with just a few bids on the table following a round of light trade mostly in the north yesterday and in the south on Wednesday. Dress trade in Nebraska and Iowa was mostly at $182 per hundredweight. Live business in Kansas and Texas has been marked mostly at $114. Fully steady with last week's weighted averages. Asking prices for cattle left on show lists are around $115 to $116 in the south and $185 in the north. You're listening to Adam on agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And very happy to have with us the chief economist for USDA, Seth Meyer. Seth, welcome to AOA. Thank you. Nice to be here. 
I was just thinking, you know, when you come into a job like USDA Chief Economist and you go to the Outlook Forum and you're up there making those presentations, um, good to be able to do that with uh, prices on the uptick and exports going good. So that's a, that's a good way to have an Outlook Forum. Sure. It takes a little pressure off of you, right? You can tell a positive story for agriculture. Um, you know, and, and, and the job is a lot more than just markets as well, too. It's an apolitical job. It's not a political appointment. You know, so we kind of see the other thing behind the office, uh, despite it, on top of explaining how things are going, is kind of separating the well-intentioned good ideas from the well-intentioned bad ideas when it comes to things like policy. The Outlook Forum has kind of become an unofficial crop report, and some say, hey, you're making projections on things like acres in, in February, and there are a lot of decisions yet to be made yet on that. What are your thoughts on, on, on how that forum is now viewed as far as the information that comes out of it? You know, so, so I think it's, it's kind of a um, – folks are right. Weather ultimately has the last say. But it also does provide kind of a first look going forward. And it's, it, it's important folks understand that, you know, it's conditioned on uh, a normal weather projection. And, and like I said, weather will always have the final say, but it's kind of this mix of normal weather plus the economics of what we see right now. So when we talked about acreage and a big rebound in acreage, uh, a chunk of that rebound in acreage simply because of a expected return to more normal planting weather, right? I mean, I, I think folks don't think about how big prevent plant was for 2020 because 2019 was so huge. Right? But if you return to more normal planting conditions, you'll gain acreage. And then on top of that, strong prices will affect acreage a little bit, and more importantly, it'll affect the mix of crops. So it really is a first look of, hey, under normal weather conditions, here's where, where we're sitting going forward. And it allows the market to kind of play off, you know, make some choices, send some signals at this point. We're talking with USDA Chief Economist Seth Meyer. Seth, I made the comment that in the last few years, that same projection of an increase in acres, an increase in production, that would have been considered a very bearish report. But things have changed so much with the uh, tighter stocks that now you can put out a report like that, a projection of higher acres and higher production, and it's not considered a bearish report. No, absolutely. And I think, if you know, we were talking about this yesterday in the office, and, you know, it, it's, it's a completely different sentiment pre-August of last year and post-August of last year, right? We started out the season with expectations of, of big carry-out stocks. And so then we get to August, and our thoughts on the size of maybe the corn and soybean crop begins to shrink a little bit. And at the same time, the Chinese come in quite strong and continue to buy, continue to buy as prices are rising. So not only are they helping to drive prices up, they're continuing to buy. So when you look at how we look out into the 21-22 crop year or the crop that folks will be planting there here coming soon, um, domestic demand and foreign demand has been robust for both crops and livestock. And we're going to need both of those, though, to kind of get those prices we're seeing, uh, we're expecting for 21-22. We spent much of last year speculating on whether or not China would buy big. Then they started buying even bigger than maybe we thought. Now the speculation this year is, will they keep it up? What are you thinking on uh, China demand? So while we haven't put out a specific China, so for instance, I, 
the rebound in bean demand, this is going to be driven largely by the rebound in their swine herd. So, you know, they, they bring in most of what they crush. They bring it in. So that's the driver there. For corn, while I don't have a specific China corn import number to provide you, uh, we'll do that first in May. Uh, the balance sheet for the U.S., which shows that continued strength in corn exports, would call for a Chinese corn demand number on the same magnitude that we're looking at right now, right? So that demand would continue its strength. Um, for, for things like pork, uh, while we expect maybe Chinese demand to slacken a little bit, given their strong rebound in their own sow herd, you know, maybe we get back some of the Mexican market as their, as their, their economy rebounds. But I will say we need those – we need that both good, solid demand and robust exports to achieve those prices that we forecast. So what are your thoughts on the ag economy right now? I mean, we have the, uh, the market rally and certainly working off higher prices than we have for some time, but we've had a period of, of down prices. So when you look at where the ag economy is here – at the end of February in 2021, and where you see it going now this year? Yeah, so the first forecast, and, and, and the headline is maybe a bit deceptive, right? So the first forecast for 2021 for farm income is actually lower farm income. And so when you look at that, there's a lot of nuance to that. So 2020, we saw farm income supported by a significant extent to those programs that were needed and developed prior to August of last year. So I talk about there being two different worlds, before August and after August. A lot of that money was determined at a time when folks can remember back and think about a very negative sentiment and government support, things like the coronavirus food assistance program and residual MFP, that supported farm income to a lot, uh, to a great deal. And we actually see as that money withdraws, farm income falling a little bit. But the good news is, Farm income remains well above average for the last two decades, and you're replacing a fair amount of those government dollars from adverse events with dollars from the marketplace, right? So, you're, so, so while we can talk about you know a dollar from the government and a dollar from the market spends the same, I think your average producer would say I'd rather have it come from the market. And so, I think from a sentiment standpoint, we've seen much of that pullback in government support being replaced by dollars from the market. What do you see for the biofuels uh, industry? We know that's been hard hit, especially ethanol, been hard hit by the decrease in, in driving and, and fuel consumption. Of course, now there's a challenge perhaps on, on switching to more electric vehicles, things like that. But uh, as we look at where we're at, which has such a big impact on the corn market, what do you see ahead for ethanol and the biofuels market? So for me, the most very short run. So let's talk about this crop that folks are going to put in the ground soon. Let's just talk about demand for that. To me, when you think about the demand for that crop in the corn grind, the most important factor in the short run is going to be whether people return to driving or not. That's not to say policy isn't important, but policy is one of those things which provides an underlying support. And I think we've been having a lot of uncertainty with respect to policy in the past several years. So it is if we get some more policy uh, certainty, that may lead us to a more solid path for ethanol. But in the short run, what's going to matter most is whether folks return to driving or not. And 
We saw China make a purchase of ethanol. Uh, remains to be seen if they're going to be in that ethanol market moving forward as far as purchases from the U.S. No, absolutely not. I think that that's another uh, another wild card here, too, is, you know, whether or not uh, China makes that purchase, follows through with that purchase, purchases more. Um, you know, unfortunately, we don't have those same reporting requirements in the ethanol market, right? So we won't really know for sure until it ships. It's not like the grain market where you make a sale and you have to report that. It's not the same, so we don't we don't have the same verification that we might otherwise. Uh, but certainly, that is another opportunity uh, for, to, to to shift around that corn grind. I want to wrap up kind of where we started on on acres. It's an interesting situation, and you made your projection of ninety two on uh, on corn, ninety on on soybeans. Uh, what's interesting is when you have strong prices kind of across the board. Um, it's kind of a real challenge for the markets to buy acres because so many of these commodities have strong prices that would attract keeping their acres, whether it's in wheat or sorghum or, or cotton or whatever it may be. It makes it very interesting. No, absolutely, right? So if, if, if the Chinese demand corn and soybeans, it doesn't just mean corn and soybeans prices are going to be the ones that are going to rise. It's going to pull everything higher. And, and, and that's also why I think, you know, we go all the way back to that initial discussion of why do we do this? You know, this is a projection. The market can start thinking about this and, and, and assessing things and, and uh, moving prices around as well, too. But, you know, that total of 182 million acres of corn plus beans would be a record. So we're already assuming a combined total for those two crops higher than we've observed in the past because of the strength of those prices. But the prices don't remain there. They spill over into everything. Well, Seth, so far so good, but of course you haven't put out a report yet uh, that people question and, and when the market uh, goes down after it, and then you'll start, that's when the fun begins for you, right? That's when people start pointing fingers. Right now, it's kind of, you're off to a pretty good start, kind of a honeymoon here. Well, hey, you know, I used to run the world board, so I was actually closer to the release of those reports before, when I was at USDA the first time a while back. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're absolutely right. The phone rings when prices go down. The phone doesn't ring when prices go up. I answer it either way. Uh, But I will say, you know, half the time it rings and half the time it doesn't. So the report is really a way to to put everybody on an equal understanding of what's going on in the market from Cargill to the producer. Everybody gets on an even footing. Well, welcome back to USDA. We look forward to talking a lot this coming year. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Take care. USDA Chief Economist Seth Meyer. Well, how much uh, damage did that uh, winter storm have on the uh, winter wheat crop? We're going to check in with the CEO of Kansas Wheat, Justin Gilpin. What are producers finding as they go out there and check? That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life, but there simply aren't enough people giving blood. 
Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it, but only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids, parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors, waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to separate. First, use different cutting boards for meat, poultry, seafood, and veggies. Raw meat should never touch food that won't be cooked. Then, always keep raw meat, poultry, seafood, and their juices away from other foods in the shopping cart. And store raw meat, poultry, and seafood in a container or on a plate in the fridge so juices won't drip on other foods. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. Beware of telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you. Call is threatening you with arrest or other legal action and demanding money are not from us. If you receive a call like this, hang up, do not provide them with any form of payment or information. Report the call at oig.ssa.gov. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. Happy to have with us the new president of the National Association of Conservation Districts, Michael Crowder. It'll be interesting to see where we go with conservation, with this new push, with climate policies and things like that. What are your goals? What are your priorities for this coming year? One of my big goals is climate change. As far as where the new administration is going with climate change, how is it going to affect farmers, ranchers, foresters? We want to make sure that we represent those producers in the right way with make sure the upcoming farm bill will have those issues that's best in mind for for producers. So that's where I see climate change coming. There's also a part of that is food security and insecurity. We all know that 2020 was a hard year and some of our products didn't get to market. And if we have food security, you know, that's national security. So that's important to all producers is that we have free flowing markets. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless gas that can be fatal. Don't use anything indoors that burns fuel. 
such as gasoline-powered generators, camp stoves and lanterns, or charcoal grills. Opening doors and windows or using fans isn't enough. Have your vents and chimneys checked to make sure water heater and gas furnace exhausts aren't blocked. If you feel sick, dizzy, or weak while using a generator, get to fresh air right away. From the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, last time we talked with Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat, it was uh, during that big winter storm, and we were concerned about damage to the wheat crop. And since then, of course, conditions have improved, fortunately. But what about the condition of the crop as the growers are out checking it? Justin, thank you for joining us. What's the latest? What can you tell us of what growers are finding? Well, it's warmer down here now, Mike, so I'm I'm happy to report that at least. You know, with uh, the last time we talked, we were certainly uh, highlighting the, the extreme sub-zero temperatures that caught all the farmers uh, a little bit by surprise. We knew we were going to have a cold snap, but, it, but we saw record temperatures that we hadn't seen since the probably about the 80s, as best best we can tell, uh, that uh, that we had at this point in time with the with the crop. Uh, and so it's it's we're still in wait and see mode. Uh, but uh, those those cold temperatures uh, have everybody a little bit on edge and uh, a lot of uncertainty about what this crop's going to ultimately look like and how it's going to come through once we start to break dormancy. As you've been out and about and you've talked with some growers, what, what are some of the things that they're saying that uh, are most concerning to them as far as recovery? Well, everybody's trying to get a, you know, a, good evaluation of, of what their risk was with these cold temperatures. Uh, there's so many different factors that really come into play. You know, what what we saw in, in Kansas, uh, you know, is around February 16th, uh, we saw minus 20 degree temperatures for the low. Uh, some areas was, I think, uh, re- uh, set multiple record lows throughout western Kansas, eastern Colorado, from minus 20 to minus 25. And, and what the, what that might impact the plant is it's most important, not necessarily the, the, the ambient air temperature that we had, but what we're really trying to get a handle on is what those soil temperatures uh, drop down to. And so that soil temperature, because the crop was still in dormancy, and so the, the growth point of that plant still was in the soil. So that's where it was going to be most vulnerable. And how well was that growth point of that plant protected? Uh, was there snow cover? What was the amount of moisture that the soil already had in it? Whereas the drier soils in those drought areas are going to be more susceptible where we didn't have good snow cover. Those are the, the fields that are going to be most susceptible. And then the extreme uh, shift in temperatures that we had uh, where we went from February 16th to 
to February 23rd, we we saw highs in those same areas uh, up over 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So we had over a 100-degree temperature swing just within a week on those fields. So uh, it, there's been a lot of extreme weather this crop is, is going through, and I think what people are really going to see uh, and we're already starting to see is that that cosmetic leaf damage that was that was exposed, uh, but we're still uh, in wait and see mode about that growth point to see uh, if that crop's going to be able to uh, uh, break dormancy and, and still be able to come out of it. Mike, did any part of the state of Kansas get hurt more than the other? You think? Well, you know, it's when that snow cover that we had. That's what we're really looking at. Uh, it, when you see that snow cover, the map uh, where we had good snow cover from Nebraska all the way down into to Oklahoma and, and, and into Texas, uh, that South Central Kansas, Oklahoma Central Corridor, where they had five to ten inches of snow, uh, that was pretty well insulated uh, from from damage. Now the western areas were hit in the there's parts of that um, north central part of the state of Kansas that really had light snow, only about an inch, an inch, uh, maybe two inches of snow. That was very light snow that that uh, that blew off really quickly. Uh, that didn't really give that good insulation. And that was where we had, you know, a lot of the drought areas when you look at the drought monitor. So that's the crop that's probably going to be uh, most susceptible, that didn't have good root structure, uh, and may not have been as well protected. Uh, and that's, those, are, those are the areas that we're going to be uh, keeping an eye on here. Here in the next probably... Uh, 10 days, Mike, uh, when we, as we start to break dormancy uh, to get a good handle on whether or not uh, what decisions producers are going to make with those fields that do have uh, pretty extensive damage. And what's your forecast looking like? Well, we're uh, from uh, temperature-wise, we're going to warm up a little bit. We don't have uh, good moisture uh, in the forecast, especially for some of those drought areas. So this, this drought story uh, is going to it seems that it's going to continue to persist. And I, I think when you and I visit here in a month a month or so when we're talking about how the crop has come out of dormancy and starting to look, uh, I think what you and I will be talking most about is those, those really dry areas and how that crop really hasn't come along. And uh, Drought may end up being a bigger story than, than this winter kill, but we're still in, still in wait-and-see uh, wait mode, Mike, and we'll – uh, certainly going to need some some good moisture uh, in that western Kansas, eastern Colorado, uh, kind of north central Kansas, the Panhandle of Oklahoma, Panhandle of Texas. Uh, those are the areas that uh, the market's really going to be keeping an eye on, and farmers are really going to try to uh, get a handle on here uh, here in the next ten to ten to fourteen days. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the winter kill concerns, that winter storm, uh, kind of was our focus for a while but we go back we think drought conditions ahead of it are still here afterwards so that that's the uh that's the bigger story really isn't it 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 certainly is because you know just just like what we had last year where we had the freeze event uh around uh, the easter freeze event where the crop was able to actually come back from that because we had good moisture good temperatures that allowed the secondary tillers to come on and the crop came out to be about average in those areas, whereas uh, this is going to be very important and vital for that crop to uh, to get some some good moisture uh, and uh, stay away from those high temperatures as the crop begins to finish out uh, it's for it to, to try to reach that uh, even up to average levels. But certainly a lot of concern, uh, a lot of decisions that uh, producers are going to be making. Uh, 
I know you've, you've talked a lot about the, the price disparity uh, where we've had pretty narrow prices with corn, wheat, and milo. Uh, producers are going to be making some decisions about what they might do with that wheat crop uh, and maybe go into a row crop this yep. spring. We'll stay in touch, Justin. Thanks for the update. Appreciate all you do, Mike, for all your listeners and uh, sharing uh, sharing the story of agriculture with uh, reliable, important uh, information. Thank you, Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.